Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 14, which will be our sermon text for this morning. We're working our way through the book of Genesis. Little by little, we uh, have been in the Abraham story for, uh, well, a few chapters now. I don't know how long that has been, but uh, a few chapters now, and we come to Genesis 14. And before I read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, but that you sent your Holy Spirit. Uh, You sent your Holy Spirit on uh, the day of Pentecost, and you sent your Holy Spirit to bring to mind for the apostles everything that you said to them, that they might write it down in your word, that we would be able to read in the scriptures uh, your will for our lives and what you would have us know about the gospel. And we thank you, Father, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to us, that you might uh, enlighten our minds and give us understanding into the things that we read about in the scriptures. And so, uh, Father, we pray right now that you would pour out your spirit, uh, that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive everything that you have for us in the scriptures. Even as we turn to the book of Genesis and uh, to this chapter in particular, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus in this chapter, help us to see Jesus in this story. Uh, We pray that you would help us to rejoice more fully in the gospel uh, when this morning is done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavath Kiriathayim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasser, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anur, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them 
and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who are with me. Let Anur, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. How do you interpret things that happen day by day? The truth is, for most of us, even the Christians in this room, we, we tend to have a fairly materialistic outlook on life. Uh, we live in a, in a, quote, scientifically minded age. And so when we look for the cause of something, we mean the physical cause. Why did the apple fall from the tree? Gravity. Uh, why did the ice cream melt? Because it, someone left it out in the hot sun. Uh, nowadays, even for personal and moral questions, we look for a physical cause. Uh, why is this child so distracted? Well, he has a chemical imbalance. Or why was this person angry? Uh, he didn't get enough sleep last night. Or, or her blood sugar levels were low. Or hormones. What made me like this? Well, I was born this way. See, the, the same can be true when we look at circumstances. Why did this happen to me uh, is often answered in a, in a matter-of-fact way. The road was icy. It was dark. You have a genetic predisposition. I'm not suggesting these things are not true, but you often find the kind of answer that you are looking for. If you look for a physical cause, you will find one. But there could be additional answers uh, to all of these questions. Uh, without needing to deny any of those things, there are other dimensions, aren't there? Uh, there is, of course, a social dimension. Uh, for many of these questions, there are other people involved who made choices, rational or irrational, right or wrong, wise or foolish. And the personal choice of others is another layer of explanation as to why things are the way they are. Of course, most importantly, there is a spiritual dimension. Without denying something like gravity, right? What, what can we say about the apple falling from the tree from the, a theological perspective? Well, we can say uh, God designed apples to grow and to ripen and to fall. Uh, their, their telos, their end, their purpose is off the tree to be eaten and enjoyed. God is the creator, the designer, the artist, the architect, right? God has a purpose for all things, even fruit. We can also say God ordained that this apple should fall at this time, in this place. God is not only the creator, but also the sustainer. He is sovereign over apples and trees and gravity and people and places and everything. 
Gravity does not negate providence, nor vice versa. This is what theologians talk about as secondary causes. God is the primary cause. Gravity is one of those many secondary causes that God uses to bring about his purposes in the world. Now, if this all seems a bit heady to you, uh, here is the question at hand. When you describe life, when you explain what happened today, when, when you try to understand your trouble and your triumphs, when you paint a picture of your day or your week or your year or your life, is God in that picture? I've mentioned before that my mother-in-law collects rocks, and not just any rocks, but fluorescent rocks. And they're amazing because to the naked eye, they simply look like ordinary gray-brown rocks. But the moment you put them under a fluorescent lamp, they glow with bright greens and oranges and purples. And what you can't see with your naked eye was there the whole time. When you look at your life, can you see God in the picture? This morning, we we get a picture of what it looks like to engage life when God is in the picture. Abram enters into the fray, he depends on God's power, and then he gives God the glory. And we, conscious of the God who is there, are to do the same. And so our outline for this morning, you can see it in your bulletin, is enter in, depend on God, and give him the glory. Uh, first, though, let's, let's take a step back and look at this story again. Uh, we, we begin this story, and abruptly, we are on the world stage. You know, what has been a story about Abram up to this point suddenly includes nine kings with strange names, four fighting against five. The five had served the four for 12 years, according to verse 4, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. And so in the 14th year, the four kings, headed by Keterleomer, king of Elam, marched on Canaan, defeating everyone in their path. Finally, they get to the five kings, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, and they defeat them as well. The Canaanite kings turn and run. Uh, Many of their armies uh, uh, fall into the tar pits, which were prevalent in that area. And Keterileomer and his fellow kings defeat Sodom and Gomorrah and take everything, even Lot, Abram's brother or kinsman. And this story is fascinating because of the details it puts in and because of the details it leaves out. Uh, We we have no idea who these kings are. They, They simply appear in this point in the story and then disappear just as quickly. The writer of Genesis doesn't bother with extraneous details. He tells us just enough to get his point across. Yet the details he includes give the story a plausibility, don't they? For example, he gives us the names of these kings, names which were appropriate to these areas and to those times. It's quite a large landmass that these kings cover, including areas from modern Turkey all the way to Iraq. And Shinar is in the land of Babylon, and so this wouldn't be the last time that a Babylonian monarch would march into the promised land. The writer includes such details as how many years these nations were under the thumb of their oppressors and the kind of terrain they faced when they were running away. He gives us just enough details to place his story in time and space. And yet he doesn't include some of the details that we might want. Uh, There's no glorified battle narrative. In fact, verses 8 through 9 tell us these nine nations join in battle, 
And then verse 10 tells us the five kings were running away. What happened in between? He doesn't tell us. Of course, the reason for the, in the end, rather sparse narrative is that the battle is not the point. It's backdrop. Verse 12 says, they also took Lot, and which tells us why this story is so important. Abram's nephew is in danger. And so Abram joins the battle with his 318 trained men. He defeats uh, the four great kings in their mighty army. He rescues Lot and his kinsmen. At this point, two kings come to Abram, the king of Sodom, verse 17, and the king of Salem, most likely Jerusalem, in verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings bread and wine and a blessing to Abram. Sodom comes to make a deal. Give me the people, the king of Sodom says, and you keep the goods. It's actually, it's, it's no-brainer for Abram. He, he doesn't want the king of Sodom being able to boast that he made Abram wealthy or having something over him, and so he gives up any claim to the spoils. The question is, what, what are we to make of this story? How, how does the pattern of God's work in history lead us to the gospel and direct us in our lives? And that brings us to our three points. Uh, the first point is enter in. This present world is full of trouble. You don't need a preacher to tell you that, I'm sure. If you watch or listen or read any news, you know of the brokenness of the present age. Uh, sometimes that brokenness seems far away, like the, the war in Ukraine, right, is only a headline to most of us. Sometimes it hits a bit closer to home. What do you do when disaster strikes around you? When it strikes you, you, you don't really have much choice but to enter in. Uh, you, you may try to run, but sometimes there's just no place to go. You can't run from cancer or job loss or the death of a loved one. These things just happen to you no matter where or how you run. But what about when disaster strikes near you? Uh, just recently, Abram and his nephew Lot had parted ways. Lot chose uh, the beautiful land, if you remember, and Abram followed God's promises. Now Lot was in trouble. Someone comes to Abram, the Hebrew, verse 13, and it's kind of an odd phrase, actually. Uh, some think it shows that the story was originally told uh, from the perspective of someone else, uh, because the Hebrews didn't normally call themselves Hebrews. It was only in relation to other peoples, other nations, that they were called by this name. Of course, if that's true, uh, that only further confirms the historicity of the story, uh, that someone other than Abraham, that someone other than a Jew might tell this story uh, beforehand. Be that as it may, someone comes to Abram the Hebrew and tells him about Lot. Now, Abram was not called to conquer the promised land. He wasn't called to fight the peoples of the land as Israel would later do. But he is ready to take up arms in defense of his family when necessary. Oftentimes when disaster strikes near us, we have answers ready at hand why we shouldn't get involved. Abram could have turned the other way for any number of reasons. Uh, he could have scolded Lot in his heart. He, he could have said, serves you right. That's what you get for throwing in your lot with Sodom. Now, we, we haven't spent much time on this, but we will see in weeks to come that Lot was slowly compromising with the wickedness around him. But Abram doesn't judge. He is gracious. Abram could have opted out because of apathy, right? Maybe, maybe there was no judgment, but not really concern either. He could have not cared about Lot. 
But Abram was not only gracious, but he was righteous and he was committed to caring for his nephew. Finally, Abram could have opted out because of fear, right? These four kings just defeated five other kings. Now, now these were uh, city-states. They weren't kings of a vast empire, but they, but they were all uh, kings of a local area. And yet they were kings nonetheless. And they had just one, four against five. What makes Abram think he can do any better? Abram could have looked at his meager resources and thought, not going to happen. There's no way that I can do this. However, that's not what Abram did. He didn't make excuses and he didn't rationalize. He saw a need and he entered into the mess of life. He took his trained men, uh, 318 of them, which gives us at least a sense of how large Abram's house really was. He took his trained men and pursued these oppressive kings all the way to Dan, the northernmost point of the Promised Land. He, he divided his forces by night and drove them right out of the Promised Land north of Damascus. So the first point to be made here is that Abram acted. He, he could have made excuses, he, he could have sat back, but he stepped up and entered in. And he did that for the sake of another. It was for his nephew Lot that he acted. And this is the, the quintal, a quintessential act of love. Abram puts himself out there for the good of another. He disadvantages himself. He puts himself in danger for the good of his nephew. Right? That's love. Well, what about you? Uh, when you see a need around you, how do you respond? When you see something little that needs to be done in your home, do you ignore it and just hope someone else will take care of it? Uh, when you see something that needs to be done in the church, do you tell yourself, I'm a busy person after all? When you see something that needs to be done in your neighborhood, do you think that's, that, that's someone else's job? Let them take care of it. Or are you the kind of person who is willing to step up and enter in? Uh, willing to enter into the messiness of life for the sake of others? Uh, you can't do everything, of course, I know that, right? But beginning in your home and working outward, your home, your neighborhood, your church, your workplace, your school, and so on, you, you should do what you can, right? And, and to serve those around you, to nurture, to protect, to cultivate, to shepherd, to enter into the mess of life for the good of those who are near you. Now, we are called to do this, of course, not because Abram did it. Uh, we, we do it uh, because Abram is just a picture of God's son. Uh, we do it because this is the mind of Jesus who, according to Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus disadvantaged himself for our sake. That is the model of love. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. John says in 1 John 4, 10 and 11, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus entered into our skin in the incarnation, and we are to have this mind in us and to enter into the mess of life, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, this is what some people talk about as, as incarnational love, right? We are obeying Paul's words in Philippians 2 and having the mind of Christ in us, loving as we have been loved, entering into the mess of others as Christ entered into our mess for love's sake. 
And so first point, simply enter in. Second, depend on God. There are two possible responses at this point. One is, uh, well, what do I have to offer? And the other is, the world has what I've got, or the world needs what I've got. The one is a kind of godless humility, which leads to passivity. And the other is a pride that will likely lead to tyranny. If, if I'm confronted with the problems of life and think, I've got nothing to offer, I, I won't act. If I'm confronted with the problems of life and think, I am what the world needs, I will impose myself on, on the world and its problems, creating a whole new set of problems. And so what's the solution? Well, we actually see it here in, in retrospect uh, from the end of the story looking backwards, and, and it has to do with the way that you see with the way that you understand what happened to Abram. After the battle, two kings come to Abram, Barak, king of Sodom, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And, and we're meant to contrast these two kings. That's clear because the writer introduces the king of Sodom and then tells us about Melchizedek and then comes back to the king of Sodom, tying the two interactions together. And so let's do that, right? Let's, let's think about these two kings. The king of Sodom went out to meet Abram, empty-handed. Melchizedek brings out a meal of bread and wine. It's, it's the same word for went out and brings out. And so already there's a difference just by them coming onto the scene. One comes empty-handed, the other comes bringing a meal of bread and wine. Melchizedek brings out the meal and blesses Abram and God, saying in verse 20, blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. How does Melchizedek interpret what just happened? God gave Abram's enemies into his hand. It wasn't that Abram was stronger or smarter or faster or a better military strategist. Some of these things may have been true, some not, we don't know, but the deciding factor was this. God gave Abram's enemies into his hand. When the king of Sodom finally speaks, he does so without respect to Abram. He doesn't thank Abram for rescuing his people from the hand of Keterleomer. He doesn't come with a blessing or a heart of gratitude. He actually comes with a demand in verse 12. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, it's a little hard to say what uh, the king of Sodom is thinking about, but whatever is the case, he recognizes Abram's right over the spoils of war. Abram defeated the four armies after all. Abram routed them, chased them out of the land. Abram brought back the possessions, the women and all the people. Abram did this. He has a right to the spoils, yes. So the king of Sodom, seeming somehow to think that he still has some leverage here, some power to bargain, he makes a demand. Give the people, keep the goods. And here's what the king of Sodom doesn't understand. Abram didn't defeat the armies of the north. He, he, Abram didn't bring back the possessions and the people, not in his own strength and power. Abram was not the one who deserves the thanks ultimately. He is not the victor who deserves the spoils. You know, Abram in the end was rather weak. 318 men sounds like a lot, perhaps, and I guess it is for one man. That's why it sounds so impressive for us. Like Abram had 318 trained men in his house. Wow. But... 318 men is not a whole lot against four kings and their armies. Uh, it, but, and, and yet that is just the way God likes to work. 
He has a habit of working through weakness. You may remember the army of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. God said that there were too many men for God to use there in Judges 7. Israel might think it was their strength that won them the battle. And so God weans the army down from over 30,000 to 300, about the size of Abram's army here. Israel's first king was named Saul. His eldest son was Jonathan. And at one point, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, the enemies of Israel. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. See, God's habit, it would seem, his preferred method of working is by few. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, God says to Zerubbabel. Uh, one psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem represent two different ways of seeing what just happened, two different possible interpretations of this battle and its victory. If we look at life from a purely human perspective in terms of human power and might, cause and effect, input and outcome, Abram won the battle by his power. The king of Sodom wants to, to hold on to some shred of advantage, so he pretends to have power, demands his people back, but uses the wealth of the possessions as kind of a bargaining chip here. But the king of Salem has already told us how to look at this situation. Blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And it appears that Abram knew it too. You see, when, when you look out at life and you see the, the trouble and the brokenness and, and the needs that are there and you think something should be done about this, if your next thought is, what do I have to offer in a, in a negative way, like, eh, I don't have anything to offer, or I have what the world needs, your eyes are focused on the power of this age. You will end up at the bargaining table trading power for power with the, with the powerful of this age, making and breaking alliances, comparing yourself, evaluating, considering the odds, unable to do any real good because you're too busy trying to gain and maintain power to do good. But God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And Jesus went to the cross in weakness, but he depended on his Father and said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died in weakness, Paul says, but through that weakness, he gained victory over sin. And then Jesus rose by the power of God. If you are to enter into the troubles of life for the good of others, you must do so in dependence upon God. Not independent of God, but in dependence on God. If you come to the table with, with only your own resources, all you can do is impose yourself on others. But your resources, God-given as they are, cannot in themselves fix what is broken. Rather, God has worked in Christ to defeat sin. And in the resurrection of Jesus, God has begun to make all things new. And Jesus poured out his spirit on his people so that he might work through us to manifest new creation in the here and now. So you, you may look at the world and think, I don't have what it takes, and so refuse to act. Or you may think that you are where you are today because of your own power and might and ingenuity. 
You may look at your God-given powers and think that they in themselves can fix what is broken in the world. But you are where you are today because of God's power working through your weakness. And so what power do you trust? Uh, Do you step up uh, confident in your own abilities, ready to take on the world in your strength? Or do you look for God's help in your need, his power in your weakness? Do you cry out independence and then step up and enter in, knowing that God is at work through you for his glory? Well, that brings us to our last point. So point one is enter in. Point two is depending on God. And then three, give him glory. Uh, when, when things go well, uh, do you claim victory or give glory? You know, when, when uh, sports players do something amazing and then they, they point to the sky or they, they thank God in an interview afterwards for getting them where they are, uh, they've really got the right idea. Uh, we may puzzle over prayers that one team would win over another, wondering if God really cares which team wins the game. But either way, God is the one who gives ability and strength. Victories in life are from his sovereign hand and a part of the mysteries of his providence. How do you respond when things go well? Do you claim the victory for yourself or do you give God the glory? Abram refused to take the spoils of war. He didn't want Sodom's tainted plunder. In fact, in this story, three full verses are given to Abram saying no. Uh, the, The last three verses, verses 22 to 24. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who, have, who went with me. Let Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Abram acknowledges that his allies may take their share. His young men have a right to what they have eaten. But Abram himself will not take a thread or a sandal strap, right? He's saying not a shoelace of Sodom's possessions will I take. Abram doesn't want Sodom to be able to say, I have made Abram rich. Abram doesn't want to get caught up in the power struggles of this age. He doesn't want to owe the king of Sodom in any way. Of course, Paul says in the New Testament, in in Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Abram says, no, I'm not going to get wrapped up in this. Wealth from Sodom has too many strings attached. Where our money comes from matters. But notice what else Abram does. Uh, Melchizedek comes bringing a meal and a blessing, both symbols of communion with God. Uh, Melchizedek comes as a priest, a priest of God Most High, uh, which is a title for the true God in Scripture, normally used outside Israelite circles. Uh, So for Melchizedek here, Melchizedek is a priest of this God, the one who created or possesses, verse 22 says, heaven and earth. God owns everything. Uh, Another reason that Abram doesn't need to grasp after Sodom's wealth, by the way. And when when Melchizedek comes, representing God Most High, bringing a a fellowship or a victory meal, offering blessing, how does Abram respond? Look at the end of verse 20. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. That is a tenth of all the spoil. Abram pays a tithe. Why does he do that? Well, it's a way of acknowledging that God gave the victory and giving thanks to him for that victory. Uh, Notice Abram is both careful where his wealth comes from and what he does with it. 
He gives a portion of it to God to acknowledge God. And this is how Abram gives glory rather than claiming victory. And uh, there, there's a point to be made here, right, that what we do with our wealth matters. It matters because it demonstrates what is in our hearts. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Right? In the Old Testament, that the tithe and the first fruits were a way of acknowledging everything I have is from God and for God. Again, there's an important point here to be made about, about what we do with our money, and the reason it is so important is because what we do with our money demonstrates what is in our hearts. There are many biblical principles about how to use our money, and I can't go into them all here. That's a, a sermon for another day. Uh, but the most important is this. Jesus said at one point, you cannot serve God and money. One of them will always win out. In the end, you will either try to use God to get money, or you will use your money to glorify God. And remember what is going on here, right? Abram entered into the mess of life for the good of another. He did that in dependence upon God. The king of Sodom tempted Abram to think that Abram had gotten the victory by his power, to think that we are, are where we are because of our own power or might or ingenuity, that we are the victor and to us go the spoils. But Abram recognized God's help by giving a tenth of the fruit of his efforts to God in gratitude as a kind of free will offering to God. Well, Jesus too entered into the mess of this age. He took on our troubles. He disadvantaged himself he, to the point of death on the cross that we might have life. He has accomplished the victory. Uh, Jesus is the, the greater Abram, right, who rescues God's people from their enemies. But Jesus is also the greater Melchizedek. And like Melchizedek, Jesus is both king and priest. He announces his victory in the gospel, and then he invites us into communion with the Father through himself. Uh, we'll see that in a tangible way in just a moment when we partake of the Lord's Supper. But that's not the end. Uh, Jesus continues today to subdue enemies through the preaching of the gospel, turning his enemies into friends as people hear the good news of the death and resurrection and put their faith in Jesus. And scripture tells us that on the last day, According to 1 Corinthians 15, then, the, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. See, Jesus reigns until he conquers all his and our enemies, until every last one of his people is rescued like Lot from the power of the evil one. Then Jesus delivers the kingdom over to the Father. He, the incarnate Son, will give glory to the Father by offering to him the spoils of war. And then will come the great feast, what Scripture calls the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will rejoice in God's victory through his Son forever. The question for us is, how will we respond now? Uh, do you assume that you have gotten yourself to where you are today, that, that your money is yours to do with as you please, your life is yours to do with as you please, or are you thankful for what God has done for you? Uh, do you recognize that your wealth comes from his hands? Are you grateful for the greater work that God has done for you in the gospel, in the cross, and in the resurrection? Well, if you are thankful for these things, the whole of Scripture would say you should give thanks, offering yourself to God, by offering a, a meaningful portion to God of, as a symbol that the whole is from him and for him, and yet anticipating the day when Jesus will offer the whole up to the Father to his eternal glory. And so enter in, depend on God, and give him glory. Let's pray.
Our Father, we recognize that uh, you in your Son are the victor, that all things are from your hands. We pray that you would help us to move out into life dependent upon your strength made perfect in our weakness and then giving you the glory for every good thing in this life and in the life to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.